Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 230. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of the Lend at Fintech conference. Today's episode is sponsored by Lend at Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and Lend at Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. Lend at Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com USA to register. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Mark Ruddick. He is the CEO of BFS Capital. Now, BFS Capital have actually been around for quite some time, since the early 2000s. They're a small business lender. Mark has been at the helm just for over a year. So I wanted to get him on, talk about the changes that he's made. He's certainly done a, a lot of changes, and we get into those in some depth. You know, we talk about their approach to underwriting, their approach to their partnerships with brokers. We talk about the impact of you know the PayPal, Amazons, and Squares of the world. Uh, we, we talk about how they want to to approach new audiences and just his views on the future of small business lending. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Uh, It's great to be here. Okay. So, you know, I like to get these things started by giving the listeners some background about yourself. You've had an interesting career, uh, uh, a global career, it seems. So why don't you give the give the listeners some of the highlights of what you've done to date? Sure. Well, I guess you'd call me a geek by training. So I have a comp sci degree, and that's uh, really the lens actually through which I've done an awful lot of work across my career, even though it really has been more in leadership, I think, than in, you know, in the trenches of tech. Mm-hmm. The experience really has spanned both a range of different sectors and also very different company sizes. So from a sexual perspective, I've worked in enterprise software, largely with a financial services focus. I've worked in mobile applications and most recently spent the last seven years really focusing on online consumer financial services. And across that career, have worked in everything from you know five-person startups to companies of half a billion dollars of revenue with 3,500 employees uh, spanning 17 countries. So from a leadership perspective, it's been a really interesting career, actually. And I've had the pleasure of working with you know teams in multiple countries, um, across multiple product lines, and have been involved in sectors that are undergoing pretty interesting transformations. And that's really what's drawn me to a lot of these opportunities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're originally from Canada, is that right? So I'm, I'm actually not. I am Jamaican by birth. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> I'm actually, no, I'm, I'm actually third generation Jamaican by birth, if wow. you can believe it. Grew up uh, a little bit in Jamaica, then went to live in England, then went to live in Canada, I guess, the sort of early middle school kind of area. And I've really spent, though, the, the, the bulk of my uh, my time in Canada. The last couple of years, my wife and I uh, were actually living in Berlin, which was a fascinating experience in its own right, a tremendous startup uh, town and a very vibrant and interesting city. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it's been, um, you know, I think a, a fascinating kind of way to grow up 
in the sense that I've been exposed to a number of different kinds of cultures and a number of different uh, sorts of places. Really a very rich upbringing. Right, right. Okay. So then what was it that, that, that attracted you to BFS Capital? So maybe I can answer that question by sort of starting at a bit of a macro level. Mm-hmm. So having spent the last seven years in, in online consumer financial services, I was really living uh, a pretty fundamental transformation that was happening in that sector as a combination of, you know, the kind of millennial effect, if you want to call it, was driving a demand for new kinds of products and user experiences and so on. But the rise of alternate data and data science was transforming underwriting, the degree to which, you know, we were able to offer automated and and customized solutions to customers was was really interesting and really exciting. And this kind of switch to an in-hand mobile first experience, all of this was really, I think, shaking the foundations of what was, you know, historically a pretty static kind of consumer financial services space. And the more I I thought about it, as I was sort of coming to the end of the the commitment I had made to, for finance in particular, the more I began to wonder to what extent these changes were going to show up in the small business financial services area. Mm -hmm. And I developed a thesis that that many of the the sort of the shifts that we had seen in the consumer financial area were going to show up in, in, in business banking in very many respects. And the question therefore became, you know, was this an interesting point of inflection for uh, SME financial services? And if so, you know, were they interesting potential companies around which we could kind of reimagine the space? And it was pure serendipity, actually, that I came across BFS. And as I got, got to know the venture capitalists behind the firm and some of the founding team here, I guess those two perspectives came together and it it really appeared that this company was very much a a diamond in the rough in the sense that it had this tremendous experience in understanding the needs of small businesses, but it was still somewhat of a mechanical Turk of a business. But if you sort of looked at the aspirations of the team here and, and of the private equity folks behind the company, you got the sense that they were really hungry to, to make this change happen. And so it became a very interesting vehicle within which to do that. And I, I like these particular moments in time because when you when you take a look at a shift, let's say in the combination of consumer or customer demand, technology enablement, all of these things, they fundamentally shake up sectors and they challenge the incumbents and they open up new white space for, for challengers and they operate in a way that can shift enterprise value uh, quite rapidly to those players who can kind of seize the opportunity. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, that to me at the stage in my career was really what excited me about coming here. Right. You know, and, and as a CEO, right, you always enter these things with a very, you know, hopeful and ambitious focus. And, um, and then you, once you, once you get on the ground, you try to figure out what have I actually got? And actually it's been a fascinating year here as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I think it is really small business lending. I think is at an interesting inflection point. There's been so much change in the last uh, couple of years with new players, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit. But maybe before that, let's, for those who don't know, why don't you just describe the BFS Capital business, what sort of products you offer, the size of the company, that sort of thing. Yeah. So BFS is focused on small business uh, working capital primarily. So we provide loans from about 5000 to about $500,000 uh, spanning six to 18 months. 
Uh, it's primarily working capital term loans, although we do significantly less than 20% now uh, MCAs. Mm-hmm. The business originates uh, on average about $300 million a year in loans. It's approaching $100 million in revenue, and it is profitable. So it's a very interesting asset in its own right. Mm-hmm. It operates today across Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. I would say that the U.S. obviously is the, the, the primary focus of the business, and the U.K. and Canada are, are much more nascent businesses for us. I would, I would call them hobbies potentially at this stage, but obviously the intent is to much more aggressively grow our international footprint, but starting with those two countries in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, okay, so then, so you, you took on the job, uh, was, I think, you know, November of 2018, I believe. And you, so you've, it's, as we're recording this, uh, just before Christmas, we are, you know, you're over a year on the job. So what, maybe just take us through what are some of the changes you've made in, in your first year of C- as CEO? Yeah. So I, I think the, the primary focus when I got here was to, get some clarity around what our strategy was going to be and then what it was we needed to do to effectively execute on that strategy. And what I found was really a company that had deep IP in terms of understanding the customer base, but but nominal IP in, in terms of any technology underpinning. Hmm. So we, we very quickly set about a twin track strategy here at BFS. The, the first track was really getting the core business into a place where being technology enabled or more technology enabled, it would achieve some sort of competitive advantage. And that was not a trivial undertaking. We began in uh, this sort of early part of the spring to identify a new uh, technology stack that included a new uh, loan management system, a new risk engine that could allow us to scale to you know, a deeper, broader pool of data and some more modern uh, underwriting techniques and uh, an underlying kind of CRM around which we could build a, a customer lifecycle, a holistic view of the customer. And we chose Provenir as the risk engine, which is a fairly well-known uh, platform now. I think it's in use by a number of uh, pretty interesting organizations around the world. Mm-hmm. We chose Salesforce as our underlying CRM. We chose a, a young company actually out of New York called LendingFront, which has an interesting heritage in the sense that it was founded by some of the early team from OnDeck. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt that given what we were trying to achieve here, that was, was the right the right kind of platform mix. So, so track number one really became uh, beginning the process of kind of transforming this business from a little bit of a mechanical Turk really to a digital and highly scalable lender. And as part of that, we have uh, obviously been beefing up our technology core team we hired a great new CTO you know, earlier this year, and we have begun to test the new platform now. And in fact, by the next, uh, I would say, four weeks or so, all of our North American loans will be moving through the new platform. And it, not only does it allow us to automate more of the process here and to underwrite much more quickly and much earlier in the process than historically we've been able to, but it gives us the capability to transform the relationship we have with our partners so that, you know, from being really a bit more of an asynchronous human to human type of relationship, it's a much more API driven relationship going forward. So that, that was all track one. And I think to me, that was in effect just table stakes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, track two was about going back to the, the place we started our conversation, which is, you know, what does this point of inflection mean for SME financial services? And how could BFS reimagine part of that future? And, and what role could we play in being a part of that future? And so we began about uh, five, six months ago to look at if we were going to start from scratch, what might the next generation of you know, SME financial products look like? And could we actually credibly build some of them? And that, that's a process that's now well underway. And in fact, as I think you may have noticed, we have opened a new data science and tech hub in Toronto, mm-hmm. where we're going to be building that new generation. And we have not announced yet, but we have opened the second hub now in Omaha, where a lot of the core technology transformation will be done. So that was that's, that's really been a huge part of my focus over the last year. Around that, you can imagine really what the rest was. The rest was trying to get an assessment of what resources we had in terms of you know our management team and our mid-level management, our skill sets, and so on. And identify places where if we were going to transform from being, you know, a much more human powered organization to being a much more digital organization, where were the gaps and, and you know, how were we going to kind of change them over? And so the other thing I think that, that we as a team have been working on is reskilling and upskilling the teams. At a management team level, you probably noticed that we've hired a new COO. He and I worked together before doing some high-scale uh, online algorithmic lending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there will be another announcement coming out in the early part of January. Not a name I can mention, but we've found a, a, a wonderful new uh, chief marketing officer. And our current chief marketing officer is going to transition over to become our chief people officer. And And I asked her to make that change because she is extraordinarily skilled in that area. And as you can imagine, as we, we transform this company, it has an enormous impact on the people here. Sure. But you know, yeah. our employer brand and everything we're doing about attracting the best and the brightest in the world is going to have to be driven by someone whose sole purpose uh, it is to do that. And, and uh, Sherry is really just naturally talented in that area. So <laughs> lots of stuff going on. I think the last thing that we've done as we've sort of clarified our strategy around where we go over the long term as I went back and I asked two questions, one was, you know, the, the core business today is very much an indirect merchant business. We, we go to, to, you know, business with a number of partners, uh, mostly brokers, uh, but that landscape is evolving, obviously, and it's getting broader and, and more interesting. And so, you know, I asked the question, well, how well are we doing in this space today? And it turned out that we weren't doing particularly well. I think our lack of automation at times had caused us to uh, often get a little breathy about sending out offers before they were fully underwritten because we felt the pressure to do so. And as a result, you know, we occasionally left our partners at the altar, right, where when we finally underwrote the deal, we realized that we couldn't do the deal. And that that leads to a very bad, quote unquote, customer experience. Obviously, Mm -hmm. So over the last little while, we've been turning that around completely and winning back the trust of of that particular community. And we're giving them some amazing tools now with the new platform that give them complete transparency, really. They can see all of their their life cycle of their leads from lead to loan to even, you know, lifetime customer value. The second thing was really trying to figure out, you know, where the arc of this business was going. And and one of the things that I took out of the customer, the kind of consumer space that, that I've been working over the last little while in is the importance of kind of understanding the regulatory arc and understanding where it was that, you know, a truly sustainable business could could exist. And and 
as I took a look at the small business lending sector and I, I looked at kind of the potential regulatory arc that, that we were going to be facing, not only in the United States, but frankly, around the world, I think we, we began to realize that what we needed to do as an organization was, was move up the credit curve a little bit and look at being able to thrive in a world of lower APR types of, of products. And so as a result of that, we really have begun to tighten our, our lending criteria and, and also broaden our product offering in, in a way that makes it inherently much more appealing to those customers with more optionality, right? Uh-huh. Those customers have choice. And, and a lot of what you started to see coming out of the new brand and, you know, the, the waiving of upfront fees is really just the beginning of that story, the beginning of trying to create a compelling and differentiated brand in the sector, backed up by tighter underwriting criteria at the, at the back end. So it, it's, you know, it's been literally 12 and a half months at this stage, maybe, you know, almost 13. And uh, it has been a full year. Uh, pretty <laughs> right. pretty Pretty exciting, actually. Right, right. Okay, so there's, there's, there's quite a bit to unpack there, but I just maybe we start with um, with underwriting. You mentioned that several times. You mm-hmm. talked about how you bring in more automation, more of an API based approach rather than a human to human approach. Tell us a little bit about that process and like how automated is it today? Are you, you know, what, what data sources are you pulling from, and are these what, what new things you've implemented there? Yeah, it's a good question. So. You know, the frame of reference I have is the world I, I just came out of. So the company I was running prior to arriving at DFS, we were making about 22,500 lending decisions a day. Yeah. And we were issuing about 16,500 loans a day. And not a single human being touched that entire process. Right. It was completely algorithmic. So I sort of set that as the North Star benchmark, right? Mm-hmm. Now, small business underwriting is far more complicated. It's sure. complicated because there is a discontinuity of the underlying data that you very often need to take a look at. Some data sources that we will need to adjudicate certain kinds of loan are simply not available digitally via API today. So there's always going to be a need for a subset of your underwriting to be a human-powered kind of algorithm, right? Now, the question, though, is how do you marry the technology and the humans in a way that, that creates the most efficient process you can? And how do you build the underlying decisioning technology stack so that as new data sources become available, you can leverage them very quickly and automate more and more of the process? And so I think number one is we see this very much as, uh, as a hybrid we, uh, where in some cases the machine can make all of the decision. But in most cases, the machine can make most of the decision, mm-hmm. and we might need a secondary check you know, from a human underwriter who is able to kind of look for the nuance, right? The second thing is that, that you know, we, we need to evolve our thinking and our capability by continuously challenging ourselves to look at new data sources and then to backtest them to see if they are predictive. And, and I think so much of being able to unlock a new range of financial products and services for the digital native generation is going to be about a frictionless experience, right? And, and to some extent about immediacy. And, and I think that's a big challenge for people in the small business lending space. These are very difficult companies to adjudicate sometimes. And, and you know, but yet the, the long arc has to be this kind of North Star, right, towards full automation eventually. 
So what data sources do we look at? Well, we look at a combination of both, you know, the kind of credit information and other things we can acquire on the owners and the officers of the business. We look at the business itself, it's, it's all of its kind of credit history. Increasingly, we look, obviously, at um, bank transactional data. But going forward, I think our philosophy is to look as broadly as we can at complementary data that might come from sources as diverse as cloud accounting systems all the way through to social sentiment, right? If, if you are trying to figure out if you should lend to a B2C company, a restaurant, for example, it's really helpful to understand the arc of, you know, what is the kind of customer feedback been over time? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Are more customers, you know, writing reviews versus less? We think that there's a really interesting play in looking more broadly than kind of historical credit measures. Mm -hmm. And so part of what our team in Toronto is doing now is it's building the kinds of algorithms to go and get that data, backtest it against, you know, the world that, that we've seen up to date, because we have significant many, many, many years of outcomes, right? And, uh, and, and try to understand the predictability of that information. So I would say, you know, it's a never ending journey really for our risk team. And, and, and I don't think it, uh, it, it is going to end anytime soon. Right. Um, <laughs> Yes, that's for sure. So you can never be good enough at underwriting, right? No, there's always, there's always room for improvement, and there it's it's yeah. an, it's it will, ever, it will never end the, the the room for improvement. That is. So one thing I want to you talked about you're you're primarily working with uh, brokers for for <laughs> customer acquisition, and you, you you did touch on this about how you're improving the experience for them. So I guess maybe you know, one of the big challenges I think for any any lender, whether it's small business consumer or what have you, is 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 the cost of acquisition and how are you kind of you're putting all this effort in? Um, how are you kind of controlling that particular metric? Yeah, it's a good question, and maybe I should I should step back and say we actually look at two fundamental metrics in concert. We certainly look at the cost of acquisition, but we look at it in the context of customer lifetime value. Sure. So, and, and you can't really look at just one without the other. Mm -hmm. And so, so on the cost of acquisition side, I, I think this is a, a this is a really interesting topic, actually. So today, we are a little fooled because you know our brokerage model that that drives much of this this industry is a model where the commissions are in effect paid by the, the customer, the end customer, right? Mm -hmm. And so you don't really ever get hit with kind of cost of acquisition. You don't think of it that often or historically you haven't thought of it that often, right. obviously as a company. Now, as you do more direct customer acquisition, as you do more digital acquisition, as you go out and try to convert customers you, you really now have to start to look not only at performance-based marketing, which does have, can have very high costs, but broad-based multi-channel marketing, which can also have costs. And I believe, by the way, that if you are going to, over time, attract the, 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 the truly discerning customers, you need to also have a brand. And that requires that you must spend on brand and on brand awareness. Um, all of that adds to the overall cost of acquisition. And, mm -hmm. and the secret really is to grind that down over time with both a high degree of, of excellence in your kind of performance marketing area, 
but also looking at, at more serendipity, right, in terms of being able to raise your profile through third-party content, through PR amplification, and so on. So one of the reasons why we are, are spending so much time and focus on, on really reimagining our marketing organization under the leadership of a new CMO is that we believe that's going to be you know, pretty important going forward. Now, there's a third pillar here, which I find particularly fascinating. And I, I think about this a lot because one of the ways in which we built Vigo very, very successfully, Vigo was the mobile software company that was, was my second real kind of area of focus after enterprise software. Vigo was very quickly grew to be one of the most highly downloaded BlackBerry apps of all time before it was acquired by BlackBerry in about 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. Vigo spent almost nothing on marketing, but it was able to go to market through a a wonderful kind of cross-section of rationally aligned partners who were as eager to tell the Vigo story as we were. And we didn't have to pay for any of that. And so the question we've been asking ourselves a lot is, how do we unlock access to dump trucks of customers, as I like to call them, without actually having to buy them one dump truck at a time, right? In other words, can we find partnerships where there is this rational sort of self-interest alignment where uh, as we're successful, they're successful and vice versa, and ultimately, therefore, bring down the overall ambient cost of acquisition. And I think that's, that's where we're spending a lot of our focus right now. And that's one of the reasons why we're kind of thinking about our tech stack in such a way as to enable that and make it possible, right? right. And, and, you know, I think you'd rightly point out to me, you know, there are some companies that are really doing that well today, companies, you know, that have their own ecosystems like, Stripe and Square and to some extent PayPal and Shopify, who have not only captive ecosystems of customers, which effectively they can get for free, but then they have all this proprietary data on top of it that they can use to to pre-score and to judge those customers' creditworthiness. That's a very powerful competitive advantage. And I think the question we're asking ourselves is, are there analogs to that that we can take advantage of as we scale out our, our indirect merchant business? Right, that's right. That, that's that's super interesting. So then, it brings up a, a, another question that is, you know, there's there's some of your competitors have gone out and um, you know and, cr- and created a you know a, a, a suite of services for you know software as a service basically for for banks, which obviously is a way to get a a massive chunk of uh, of customers onboarded. You're, you're putting all this effort into tech, and I've been thinking about this for the last ten minutes, thinking you know is that is that what you're thinking of as far as you're going to going out to the to the traditional kind of lenders, or are you thinking about acquiring what do you call them, dump trucks full of customers in, uh, in, in completely unrelated areas? That's a very good question. I, so I think the, the question you're really answering is, are we considering a credit as a service business? Yep. And if so, are we going to focus that on, on kind of the banking sector or in other sectors? Mm-hmm. I, I think my personal view is that, that I, I don't think that the banking sector represents a long-term sustainable strategy for credit as a service. And I'll tell you why. You know, for a long time, there's been this discontinuity of capability between the banks and this kind of rapid rise of digitalization and financial services. But, you know, most banks are actually catching up pretty quickly now. And while they may dabble by using other people's products and technology stacks, I don't think they will do that sustainably. They'd much rather own their own stack, not, notwithstanding the fact that there's a large 
portion of community banks, for example, that would much rather take software and, and deploy it than not. I, I, I think, you know, that, that's, that's a space that is, I think, being relatively well served today. And it doesn't feel like white space to me. Right. Our focus is on a slightly different type of potential partner. And I, I don't want to go into it in too much detail, but, but let me just say this. You know, if if you take a look at the Shopify's and the Squares and the Stripes and the PayPal's and so on, you know, you can imagine that there is a long tail peer group of many of those companies that are now looking jealously at their peers and saying, wouldn't it be nice to increase the average revenue per customer by being able to unlock credit to those customers, either because we could monetize that on our own or because it would enable those customers to buy more of our stuff, which frankly is going to generate greater margin for us. Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is probably yes. And and I think that if we are going to scale our indirect to merchant business aggressively over the next few years, in fact, if anyone is going to do that, that is likely to be the vector that they're going to have to pursue. So are we investing in in building robust APIs that enable us to provide credit via API, for example, in other words, us to be the stripe of credit, for example, I would say, yes, that is an interesting potential area of interest for us. But I would not underestimate the, the degree of difficulty in, in, you know, taking an alt lender and turning them in effect into a software company, which is, right. which is what that would require. And so we're not rushing down that road. I think we see an evolution of our current broker base to a much more digital broker and, you know, comparison site base to some selective deep strategic partners with whom we will have deeply digital connections as being kind of the first wave of that. I think beyond that to the long tail of e-commerce and payment service providers and cloud accounting vendors and all of that stuff, that is a, that's a much more difficult place to go play, but, but it's certainly interesting. Right, right. Now, it, it does sound interesting. I feel like I, I like the, the fact you're not actually trying, you're trying to sort of blaze new ground, it sounds like, because there's, you know, there's certainly lots of, you know, there's lots of people trying to provide credit as a service to banks. And there's still, I mean, what I, what I, I feel like where I love the fact that there's so many companies approaching this from very different angles and and the winner is the small business owner and I've been a small business owner my entire career and mm-hmm. you know, my dad was a small business owner and you know getting getting credit has is been uh, very difficult for over every businesses I've had it's it's been it's, it's been a challenge and I feel like we're just now getting to the point where it's becoming easier I feel like and I think it's only going to become more so in the coming decade but anyway we're we're, we're almost out of time and maybe we can just we've covered a lot of territory here why don't you just maybe take a step back and say and, and share with the listeners what's you know, what's on tap we this will be published in early 2020 what what's on tap for BFS next year I think that the two strategies or two tracks of strategy that I talked about will be, become a lot more evident as, as the year progresses. So in the early part of 2020, you're going to see from BFS really the more public launch of our new platform and what that means, um, in particular to digitally connected partners and the way in which we want to transform the reality for our partners today. I think we understand what it is they need us to be for them, which is a you know, a place to very rapidly and very efficiently help them convert leads to loans, right? Mm -hmm. I think the second thrust is going to be the continued 
evolution of our brand and our product offering. I think the, you know, the removal of upfront fees, as I said earlier, was really just the beginning of taking a point of view that will be around a differentiated product offering. And I hate to go to market as a company with an undifferentiated product. That's a really hard way to make a living. So I would expect to see some evolution there. Um, I think the most exciting thing, though, that we have coming out of, of the business in 2020 will be the launch of our new product. And it will be a fundamentally different product from anything you have seen from BFS in the past. And it will have a very different go-to-market strategy behind it. Uh, and that product should be visible you know, as we move into the second half of the year. And I think that that's the product that's exciting our board uh, and our investors and uh, and really even the core team here. And so, you know, 2019 for me was a bit of kind of an iceberg year where, you know, we had to sort of do quite a lot of heavy lifting below the surface. Not all of that heavy lifting is, is yet finished. There's more to, more to do, but it's certainly moving along. I think 2020 is the year where I'm hoping that BFS's brand profile raises significantly and, and becomes you know, I think synonymous with some forward-looking thinking, some imaginative thinking, some breakthrough thinking in this space. And you are quite correct. I think the winner in all of this is the small business owner. I think you're going to see data and algorithms unlock access to credit earlier in their life cycle than we have historically been able to before. I think you're going to start to see a broader range of products and services that are much more on their terms and not on the lender's terms. So more granularity, more control, you know, less kind of FUD, more transparency, all of that stuff. And I think at the end of the day, you know, all of us kind of understand the economic impact we have as businesses because we provide really smart entrepreneurs with the capital necessary, frankly, to power the economy. Mm -hmm. And I think the next two or three years is going to be pretty exciting in small business financial services. Mm -hmm. I I completely agree. And I'm excited to hear what you've got on tap for the latter half of next year. So we'll, uh, we'll have to leave it there, though. Mark, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much, really. It's been a pleasure. Okay. See ya. You know, Mark and I were just chatting after we uh, stopped recording there, and you know, he was talking about you know where the U.S. is compared to Europe and and other parts of the world like China, and really the U.S. actually has some catching up to do, and a lot of it obviously has to do with the old rails that we have in in place in the financial system. But you know we are we are making moves, and I think the next decade is going to be super interesting in so far as. The, the immediacy of data, the immediacy of movement of money, this is all going to have a tremendous impact on small business lending. And, and BFS are setting themselves up to be one of the leaders uh, in this change. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Lendit Fintech USA, the world's largest fintech event dedicated to lending and digital banking. It's happening on May 13th and 14th, 2020 at the Javits Center in New York. Lending and banking are converging and Lendit Fintech immerses you in the most important trends of the day. Meet the people who matter, learn from the experts and get business done. Lendit Fintech, lending and banking connected. Go to lendit.com USA to register.